Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. My name's Olivia, and on this podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to bring you the stories of how productions get made. This week on the podcast, we have a really exciting guest. We have Vancouver-based writer and director, Dr. Jules Kostachin, who is here today to talk about her new feature film, Broken Angel, which will make its world premiere at Imagine Native and Media Arts Festival this weekend, October 20th in Toronto. This BC production follows Angel, mother to Tannis, who escapes in the night from her abusive partner Earl to a women's shelter on the reservation. As the prospect of a new beginning comes to light, he tracks her down and she is forced to flee or fight. So, of course, in this episode, we are talking about all the behind the scenes of how this production got made, but we also spend a lot of time talking about Jules's personal journey through the industry, some of the adversity that she's faced, and, and how she's overcome it. It's a really interesting conversation of what it, the reality is for a BIPOC filmmaker. I loved this conversation because Jules is so open and honest about, you know, challenges that she faces in the industry. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Jules. I just want to start at the very beginning. I want to know where the idea for Broken Angel came from. Uh, A life ago, (laughs) I used to work in the social service sector, so I ran um, a woman's shelter And I was the acting CEO of a Native women's organization where we had a daycare, crisis center, second stage housing, shelter. So I did quite a bit when I was there. Then I started to think about more of a creative journey. So I started taking like a class at George Brown College. Yeah, I took like a screenwriter's course and I had an idea just kind of from my experience working in the shelter system and working with such incredible resilient women. So I thought maybe you know, I could share a story from working within. And that's kind of how it all started. This is back in 2006, I believe. So it's been a long time. Yeah. So interesting. So you're a doctor, which is you have your PhD, which is not very common, I feel to see in the in the film industry generally. So I I just found it really, really interesting. And I'm wondering how that's helped inform your storytelling and and how you actually approach these these very sensitive topics. I feel like my experience in academia as well as working in the social service sector has really informed my way of telling story, especially in Indigenous story when it comes to protocol and process. I think... For me, being a mom, I have four sons. I have two older boys that are boys, they're men. They're 28 and 26. And I had them really, really young. And then I have a set of twins. I was trying to go for a girl. I got two more boys. Um, (laughs) We're 16 right now. So I just felt like I wanted them to understand the importance of getting an education, Um, especially myself, you know, being raised. with my mom who's a residential school survivor is like a grade four level education, leaving residential school, colonial education, you know, and living in poverty and stuff. It, it, it's my education that's kind of helped me move from poverty to living more of a com- comfortable lifestyle and giving my kids what I never had. And also I think it's important to find that balance with your body, mind and your spirit, right? So definitely my creative work 
you know, feeds my spirit. Um, and academia is just kind of keeping you relevant, building more of a critical mindset. So I know they all kind of are married together, I feel like. Um, definitely way more informed and critical in my thinking. And I'm always thinking ahead in terms of what kind of stories I want to tell. And also sociopolitically too, like I don't want to create more barriers for my people, for my people, you know what I mean? For my community, <laughs> I want to make sure that uh, I'm telling um, stories that are relevant, that create change, that represent the diversity that exists. So I feel like it's all one, but I did after I, I, I asserted or finished my PhD, I think it was last April, 2021, I decided to walk away from academia because I felt like it was taking too much of my time and I raised my kids and I did everything that I could. I have great kids and I just felt like I needed to take care of my, myself spiritually. So I decided to walk away and because, you know, academia is like, it's, it's very, those institutions are hard to navigate and it takes a lot of energy. <laughs> so I decided to focus on my art practice and I haven't looked back. So I'm really happy. I have an agent. I've been working ever since, you know, I'm in my fifties now. So I really want to allocate time to the creative space. So in terms of writing the script, putting it together, I read that you had a tougher time finding production partners to get it off the ground. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that process. Well, I feel like, I don't know, you know, there's been a lot of shifts in the film industry, as I'm sure you're aware. You know, we went from one end of the pendulum to the other and then back again. And now we have Indigenous cinema. We've always had Indigenous cinema, but now, you know, we're classified. So I feel like, you know, I've been around the block a few times. So I've seen, you know, opportunities come and go. So I feel like with this script in particular about, you know, an Indigenous woman fleeing domestic violence, I feel like some people are kind of steer away from it. Like I've heard people say no so many times because they're like, you know, there's no place for this kind of story or let's focus on the positive stories. And then I'm thinking, well, then you're erasing many Indigenous women's voices right there by saying that because we do need an outlet. We do need a platform. We do need to talk about these serious issues. And the thing is that's different is that it's coming from an indigenous woman who ran a shelter, who has lived experience, you know, who's been in these types of situations. So I feel like I'm offering my truth and it feels censored, you know, when people are like, no, no, it's not, we, we don't want to hear these kinds of stories. Let's, let's talk about, you know, rom-coms and this and that. <laughs> it's like, well, then you're silencing me. You're silencing other women that I've worked with. Um, so I just kept going. I just kept going and going and going. Even, I don't know, I've just been pushed down so many times that, you know, standing up felt right. And it felt like I needed to tell this story. My, my lead, uh, Angel, my lead character, you know, she's not waiting for an, a savior to come and save her. She does it for herself. Like, any kind of healing that anyone does, you have to do it for yourself. No one's going to make you do it, right? You know, I think this goes across all cultures and communities. If you're fleeing from something, if you are dealing or healing, you have to do it. No one's going to do it for you. So I felt like I did that with the story. Is, And I also created this really cool character, her daughter, Tannis, who's like this young girl. I think a lot of us wish we were 
you know, with that fighting spirit that just kept fighting and picking herself back up. And for me, I, I just, uh, I just love that character so much because I wish that was me, but she just gives me so much hope. The way that you structured the film, I have seen it. I got a screen. Oh, okay. In 12 <laughs> days. We shot that in 12 days during storms. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> it, it's funny that you say that because so oftentimes you never know what's happening in real life yeah. <laughs> behind yeah, exactly. the camera. And it could be like torrential downpour and you just never know from like the peaceful kind of like outside window that you think you're seeing in the <laughs> yeah, It was intense. You don't even know. It was so intense in 12 days to shoot all that. I don't know what we were thinking. So the relationship between the, the mother-daughter that you create is quite interesting because I think, uh, you know, I read, I think you probably said this at, in the first act of the movie, you have kind of this swap of the characters that the that the Tannis character plays sort of a more motherly figure yeah. to, to her mother. And then eventually you see in the second act, there's kind of more of a swap back into the t- more typical mother-daughter right. relationship where, you yeah. know, she's allowed to be more of a child. So I'm wondering, you know, if you can you can speak to that relationship and that dynamic between between those two characters. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's an interesting question because I feel like as Indigenous people, many of us are second generation or we're being raised by survivors and those relationships are strained right from the get-go. For example, you know, I'm raised by, uh, you know, a residential school survivor who went to school from age 5 to 16. She came out traumatized and to have someone who survived such injustice raise children, you know, that intergenerational trauma is going to come through. And I felt like for myself being raised by my mom, you know, she was disassociated quite often, like most times, you know, she just, she was in survival mode. And when anyone's in survival mode, it is really hard to um, develop any kind of relationship, even with your own children. So I felt like that came through with Angel, even though in the film, she's not a residential school survivor, but I think a little bit of my own personal experience came through that character in that relationship. And also my mom, you know, working hard labor jobs, having a grade four level education, like I became the parent in some way. And, you know, you know, I had to sign my own report cards or I had to write letters because my mom couldn't really read or write very well. So in English, uh, she did in Cree, but not in English. Um, so I feel like I took on that role, you know, and we dealt with a lot of stuff growing up, like a lot of hardship and poverty and violence and everything else you can possibly imagine. We survived that as a family, but there's always one kid that kind of has to take on that role. And that was me, you know, and I'm the only one that finished my education as well, which kind of speaks to that survival mode of having to be the main caretaker of your family. And I still kind of feel that way, that huge responsibility. And Tannis is that, I think, for her mom. She is that voice. Yeah, so we did some screen testing and some people, which is interesting from outside of the community, mentioned that, oh, well, Tannis seems a little bit too old. Like she feels like she is too mature for her age. But in actuality, when you know children of survivors or children who've survived such trauma that's nothing (laughs) you know because they have to grow up really 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 fast Um, and I think that's reflective in Tannis's character 
I still wanted to keep that childlike qualities about her, but uh, you know, she had to grow up before her time. It's it's so interesting to hear you talk about your own personal story, and then I, you know, I heard you say in an interview that you came out of high school with with very poor grades, and you really fought to get your spot at Concordia, and it's just amazing to now look retroactively at your journey and know that you have your PhD and that you're mm-hmm. doing so well. And, you know, you say that you wish that you were more like Tannis, but it sounds like you, that Tannis is you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, thank you. That feels good. I love that character. So I call her my little mini Wonder Woman. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like, you know, a lot of us, you know, I, I taught for many years as well. I taught many Indigenous students and I find that many students are traumatized by the t- by the time they come out of high school, right? They've had really terrible experiences with this colonial system that kind of erases who we are. So I feel like um, it's not a matter of intellig- intelligence. I've just realized that now, like, you know, I internalized a lot of stuff, you know, being told I had a learning disability, even though I had a hearing impairment and had surgery when I was 16 and stuff. We were called savages growing up in, in school, you know, I was assaulted by a teacher. Like, I just feel like my own personal experience with the educational system was terrible. And I felt like I had to prove them wrong. And maybe that's where the fire comes from, is that just from having such a bad experience and, you know, people talking down about you and your family and, you know, all the racism and stuff. It's like, it just kind of flared something up inside where I was like, I'm going to prove you all wrong, even though they probably, the majority of them don't even know I finished my PhD. <laughs> but for me, I felt like I I had to do that. Like I had to prove them wrong because I come from really strong people. I come from these resilient women. I'm really proud of my community and I'm really proud of being Cree. So I feel like I, you know, finished school for many reasons. It's, it's interesting too to think about how when stories come from uh, women uh, in particular, that they have a very unique perspective on the world that we yeah. haven't you know, typically seen in film history. And, I, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about how that perspective you know, shaped your film. Well, yeah, as you know, in the film industry, it's very male-dominated, <laughs> right? Yes, I do. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like... I don't know, even 10, 15 years ago, they're like, oh, there's no audience for this. This is like more focused towards women, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, and even like now with this whole shift in the industry, now we're finding more and more opportunities for women, BIPOC, to kind of speak for themselves. Because for the most part, people outside of our communities get it wrong. (laughs) So I think definitely there is a shift. There's still more work to be done, obviously, but we do kind of carry our own we you know we're the experts in our lives we have our own truths and we have our own lived experiences that we can share about and I feel like that will just create more uh complex storytelling more diversity across the board in terms of how we tell our stories you know I lived in northern Ontario with my grandparents they didn't speak English they were both hunter trappers you know I grew up with my mom who's a residential school survivor those stories matter right it may go against the grain. People may feel like there's no audience, but look at the Fast Runner or, or you know, this is an award-winning film that uh, people said there was no audience for and it was like the biggest Canadian film of all times or something like that, right? Because we humanize the story. And I feel sometimes when people tell stories or our stories from outside of our community, they lose that. They lose that connection and they're not pl- uh, speaking from a place of truth. 
when we tell our stories, they're universal because we're talking about a human story. Being a woman too, like we have huge audiences. People want to know, people are curious, people want to hear about our experiences and stuff. And so we just have to create more kind of meaningful opportunity. Like I feel like there's all these programs and stuff and but they they don't last very long, right? And and we have to have more women, I feel, in key creative roles as well. Like we can't be just kind of there as writer, like that's that's a key creative role, but what about being producer or director or having our own production companies, which would definitely build capacity in the film industry. I mean, I have my own production company, it's just me. Being in that kind of role, I can ensure that we're mentoring. I can ensure that we're bringing more indigenous youth into the film industry by creating employment or, or uh, opportunity for them. So, and that's the other thing too, I'm a mom, right? So I'm always thinking about my community and the next generation. And I don't know, I just feel like that's my, I have to do that. I'm obligated to do that for my community. And I have, I think, oh my gosh, I've made films yeah. with many of my students. <laughs> it's amazing. And I think that that's one of the most important things, like you said, because you can drop people in any experience and do it for a short term, but if they're not really prepared for that, if they haven't been properly mentored, yeah. it's, it's a tough spot for anyone to find themselves in. And so, you know, how can we actually support the next generation? The work that you're doing is, is incredible when you, so you have your own production company that you put together. So can you, can you talk me through um, actually getting, you know, financing for the production, getting it off the ground and, and, you know, really making it happen? Well, I feel like, you know, I started my production company back in 2010. So when I first uh, produced my TV series called ASCII Boys, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but it's really fun. We have ASCIIboys.com. It was my 13, 13 episodes and it was my two older sons, Asavak and Mihigan, going out on the land and learning from knowledge keepers and stuff. And that was inspired by the fact that I kept asking people from my community to take my boys out because my grandfather had passed away and it just never happened. So I said, you know what, I'm going to make a TV show, so I'll do it myself. <laughs> so the whole show is the boys, you know, learning from uh, knowledge keepers and elders and reconnecting. And it's funny. It is so funny because they're so urban. But I feel like that was like the first kind of project that I did and I did it with Big Souls Productions an indigenous production company it was a co-pro and that was the start of it and then I started doing like some shorts like CBC shorts and documentary because I love these kind of documentaries about community and culture and ceremony and stuff like that so I did that for a while and some narrative shorts so I've just been kind of doing smaller end projects that I could manage because it's just me who for a while was doing their own corporate taxes because <laughs> I had no capacity, no money or anything. And then I met a really amazing ally, Patty Poskett, who just, you know, she does business affairs and line producing and stuff like that. And we've been just going ever since. So she came on board, Broken Angel, and then all these doors just kept opening because I didn't have that. I don't have that business degree. I'm not... I'm somewhat business oriented to get myself this far, but I needed someone who had the next level expertise and she does, you know? And uh, so she just kind of helped me open those doors and we've been going ever since. And now we're trying to get our second feature um, in production this spring and, uh, you know, finishing Broken Angel and seeing it going to festivals. Like I couldn't have done that without Patty. I just don't feel that I had the capacity to do that. I have no staff. It's just me. And 
So definitely there's challenges and hurdles. You need to build a community yourself. You got to build your own team. And I'm so grateful that she came on board because I wouldn't be here. You know, even though that film was 12 days <laughs> under a million, I wanted just to, you know, they say you have to make your first feature, right? You got to make that first feature that will open doors for you. That will create more opportunity. And that was my goal. And I really wanted to honor those women I worked with at the shelter as well. So just felt like everything kind of fell into place. It took a long time, but I'm really grateful that we finished it. And now we're going to be hopefully working with more money, more budget and more days. So is that funny though? It's like, just to throw this in there, but there's the glass ceiling, but there's all these hurdles and stuff like that. And then when you think about the privilege and the money and the capacity other people have to create these films. And then you have someone, woman, you know, four kids, whatever, <laughs> making a film in 12 days. Then why am I not further along in my career if I could do that? Right? Can you imagine if I had more money, more time? Yeah. You know? And then I always have to prove myself. But yeah. I think a lot of you know, BIPOC filmmakers feel the same way. They're always in this position of having to prove themselves, prove themselves, prove themselves. Look what we can do with less. <laughs> Look what we can do with less time or less money. Meanwhile, then it's like those other opportunities are not being presented. It is a really interesting point. It is a really interesting point, but hopefully those, those opportunities, now they've got your first done, you, those other opportunities will just unfold. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of proving myself, right? It just gets tiring and it takes a lot of energy and stuff. That's like, I've done it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I do uh, it with uh, kids. <laughs> yeah. It's so impressive. And speaking of your kids, one of them is in the movie. And I didn't actually make the connection until the credits were rolling. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you, we look alike, my mini me with the same hairdo. <laughs> yeah. Once, once I put it together, it was, I don't know how I missed it. I want to talk about how you brought this cast together because I mean, Tannis uh, especially was such a standout performance to me, especially given that, you know, she's a child. It's yeah. so incredible. So, you know, how did you find them? How did you, you know, convince them to do your movie? And, and um, what was yeah. that like? Um, just to back up a little bit too. I mean, I had to give up my acting career when I raised my two older boys. So I grieved that process, right? So I had to not give it up entirely, but walk away from something you're so passionate about is very challenging. So I kind of was living through my oldest son for a long time, Asavak, because he does lots of films and, you know, he's, he's just living the life I wish I had. So but then I said, you know what, I'm going to start living for myself. I'm going to cast myself, even though that was the most stressful thing I think I ever did in my life, because I was trying to stay in character. And then you could see all this stuff happening behind the scenes that I'm directing to. And I'm just like, stay, stay focused, stay focused. <laughs> anyway, and then the first scene I did was the ending, which is kind of funny because I was just so happy, you know, when you're so happy and I was like, okay, Jules, but I know it comes through with the screen. Cause I was like, okay, calm down. Like I was just beaming. I was so happy to be on screen. And when I watched that scene, I'm like, oh my God, Jules, chill out. Anyway, that's just a side <laughs> story. But it was so funny. Cause when I watched it, I'm like, oh my God, Jules. By the final scene where I'm with Sarah Lee in the kitchen, like that was like the 11th day. I was so exhausted. <laughs> anyway. Um, so in terms of cast, I saw Sarah Lee, she had a small role in Monkey Beach. And I saw her and I was like, who is that? Who is that woman? Like she is so, she's got this kind of edge to her, which I like. Like she's, 
really kind of grounded. Anyway, I saw her in that film and I was like, that's who it is. That's the one. That's pl- she's Angel. And it's so weird because she had just, just a very small role. And I just it was just something about her that I was like. And then she introduced me to Brooklyn's work. And then I was like, oh, my God. Yes. And so um, Brooklyn is just quite the star. Holy. She's just such a delight to have on set. Um, but yeah, Brooklyn is an amazing talent. It just kind of happened organically. And then Sarah Lee introduced me to Carlo, like who played Earl. And I was like, he's very pretty. He's a very, <laughs> you know what I'm like? But then I thought, yes, that works. You know, working in the shelter system, people, a lot of these abusers or predators, you would never know, you know, they have this facade. And I'm like, that works. And then he sent his audition and I was like, oh my God, like, holy. And they all kind of knew each other, which was very helpful. So they did, they weren't strangers. So I think that really helped. Um, Cause I feel like the performances saved the day, you know, especially when we were recording or, you know, rehearsals. Sometimes one or two takes, we had to move on to the next one. So my actors didn't even have an opportunity to play or, you know, there wasn't 10 takes. There was basically one or two takes. So their performances blew me away. Like they were all so there, so present, so passionate, so committed. And I think that's what saved, like, you know, filming anything in 12 days is hard. And then uh, Astavac, of course, I love working with my son. I always try to bring my kids on set because I want to spend time with them. And uh he was just like, you know, a CVAC has that kind of lightness to him. You know, he's just like this happy-go-lucky guy. And I just felt like he brought some sort of an oasis to the story, even though he's a bit of a love interest, but he wasn't a savior. He was there as a support to that character, to Angel. So I felt like he was obviously the right one. And then I had like, I was on the fence for myself. I was like, eh, do I do it? Do I do it? And I said, no, screw it. I'm going to do it. Oh my God. <laughs> but I did it. It was fun. And then I brought my mom in. My mom played the Kukum in it, you know, the grandmother. Yeah. yeah so that's my mom. Um, that's an old teaching. Some people didn't get that too. When we did the screen test, they're like, what's that about? And I said, for Cree people, they say, when you get your period, the old woman comes and walks with you. So I wanted to bring that cultural component in there. And Olivia, you know, she plays Gracie was amazing. They're all just amazing. I just all came together organically. People were like referring people to me and stuff. And and I was looking at their work and seeing their auditions. And Quana Style, who I love, she plays the uh, the the counselor at the shelter. Quana is like a musician, an artist, and you know, like a zillion followers. And I thought that's a nice cameo. Renai Morisot from North of Sixty is a good friend of mine. I asked her to come and be the grumpy staff. <laughs> you know, it was just it just kind of happened organically. We had the best. I don't know. It just it was great. Like everybody was so into it and. So committed. So I feel like that just happened the way it should, or you know, it kind of fell into place as it should. So that's amazing. And it was it's so interesting to hear um, you know, your personal experience with acting because I think it's I was thinking that you were doing just doing it all. You wrote, directed, <laughs> you're in it. And um <laughs> your name's amazing. and everything on the yeah. craft, <laughs> craft services. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, but it's amazing and it's it's so interesting to know that you had such a passion for acting and that you gave it up and now you know your own work is becoming your next kind of frontier for for bringing back your passion for acting that's that's amazing I've just got to tone it down though like the happiness (laughs) because I was just like 
I don't know if you ever have felt that way when you're so happy. You ever felt like that? You're just like, ah, and I was like, okay. <laughs> like, I just could, there was no way I could channel it. <laughs> anyway, I, it's amazing. It's, it's <laughs> that's the passion that we all fight for in this industry, yeah. right? That's why we're all here. Yeah, exactly. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've had this long, really fruitful career so far in the industry. And I'm wondering if you could go back to your 18 year old self you know, who's just getting started, what, what advice would you want to give her? That's an interesting time. When I turned, when I was 18, I barely finished high school. I had an opportunity to, I was offered a job as a tattoo artist to go to university or take a lead in a play. Those are the three things that were offered to me when I turned 18, which is quite interesting that you said that. And I decided to go to school and I appealed to get in. I actually lied to get into university. So got an acceptance letter into the theater program, but not through admissions. So I saw the name at the bottom, the signature. So I called and said, who's this guy's boss? So then I called that guy and said, this totally lied and said, this guy told me to call you about admissions. So lied. And I booked an appointment and then I hitchhiked from Ottawa to Montreal. And I took this appointment. Well, I had this like meeting with the, the head guy there at Concordia and, uh, cried and said, you know, if you don't give me an opportunity, blah, 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 I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And then he said, come back in half an hour. So I went out, had no money, nothing, just sitting there on the curb in Montreal. And I went back in 30 minutes and no one was in the office. And I just saw a letter on the desk that had my name on it. And I got in. Wow. <laughs> That's how I got well, into you. It doesn't really sound like you lied too much. You just well, lied about getting an appointment. <laughs> That's okay. You pled your case. You did what you had to do. (laughs) Yeah, but that's the only reason why I got into, you know, like on that academic journey, because I had to plead my case. I had to say, if you don't let me into school, what am I going to do? I'm going to, I would have been covered in tattoos right now. I'm just kidding. I feel like I felt like at that particular time, education was the way for me to kind of figure out how to um, live a better life. And that's the avenue that I chose. So I have no regrets. I feel like I mean, I, I wish I was 30, but whatever. <laughs> I just feel like now I'm dealing with all these new barriers, ageism and some, you know, other things. But I feel like I have no regrets. I, I'm really grateful for all the work that I've done. And, and I'm grateful for all the opportunities that I've had. Like, I feel like I'm just getting started. Like, I feel like, you know, I've got the education. I raised my kids. I'm doing, I, you know, I've done everything that I wanted to do on my bucket list, you know, like, now it's just like having fun. Let's go make some more movies and stuff. And um, to my 18 year old self, it's like, I don't know, just keep doing what you're doing. But it was hard. I'm not going to lie that that grieving was difficult when I let go of my, you know, acting career. It was just so sad. It was just like, that's hard when you let go of something that you're so passionate about. And it wasn't by choice. It was because I was raising two kids by myself and living in Toronto and living in poverty and just struggling. Like there was, I was missing mm-hmm. auditions and stuff. I couldn't focus. I was tired and, you know, it was hard. That was, uh, so to do that again, I don't know. It just feels good. Yeah. yeah. More roles will come my way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So in, in terms of the challenges that you're facing now, you know, you've mentioned ageism a few times and I'm just one, I want to hear more about it and your experience of, you know, what's happening in this moment of your career. Well, I feel like I've done everything that I needed to do. What's interesting is that I've heard people say, well, you know, 
you should have more of a portfolio or you should have more this or that in the industry or, oh, I didn't know you did that. Or, and I feel like people fail to see the journey, you know, like, okay, yeah, I, okay, I spent some time, I, you know, in academia, I finished my PhD, that takes up a lot of time. I raised four kids, that takes up a lot of time. It doesn't mean I wasn't doing anything, you know, and I feel like there's other women, you know, my age in the same situation who raised their kids or families or taking care of aging parents, whatever, you know, like, there's always circumstances, there's always barriers as a woman. And I feel like breaking into a male dominated industry is also very challenging and takes up a lot of energy and the stuff that we deal with on set too. Like there's a lot of inappropriate behavior on set. There's just like barrier after barrier. So it's like, you have to be strong and not saying that the ones who've decided to walk away are not strong. Cause that's not the case. It's just, you have to do what's right for you. Right. And if you have the fight and you fight and um, you know, I've walked away from some projects too, because I've just felt like being the only woman on set, this doesn't feel right. People are saying inappropriate things. I just, I don't understand how because I worked in management for a long time in the social service sector. And then you have the employment uh, standard. What is employment, right? The uh, Employment Standards Act. Yeah. And I feel like how do we, how in the film industry, how, like how do people get away with some of the stuff that they get? I don't understand. It makes no sense. Like wouldn't they be fired? But no, they've got jobs for the next five years after really bad behavior. So I don't know. I just feel like there's still a lot of work to be done in the industry and and there definitely has to be, has to be a safer place for many of us, you know, mm. being a woman of my age too. It's like, well, you know, you've had your career. It's like, well, not really, <laughs> you know, we're really focused on youth, which is great, but we also have to break that glass ceiling for those of us who've been working in the industry for so long, who are at a standstill, you know, yeah, we're kind of um, overlooked. And then there's, yeah. you know, a few of us that have made it through, you know, that are working and stuff like that. But there's many of us who, who are still kind of here, who have the expertise and education and lived experience who are just not getting those opportunities. I mean, you know, systemic, right? Yeah. And it's interesting what you said about, you know, having to take the pause for your children, because I'm sort of at that point in my life where I'm kind of on the cusp of having kids the next couple of years. Yeah. And it's, it's, I find it actually really scary because as someone who's worked so hard to be in yeah. a spot in my career, now having to think about like potentially coming out of it for a year is really scary. It is scary. <laughs> because it is. what's going to be there when you get back, you know, maybe the same opportunities, maybe not, you know, and it's a huge, yeah. I think, burden that we, you know, is put on us in society that we, um, we're not sharing the load evenly at this point. And it's not even about having kids. It's about being tired, exhausted. Yeah. You're not sleeping. You're, you know, you're running ragged. Like <laughs> kids take a lot out of you, right? Yeah. It's not then, just, yeah, it's not yeah. just your mat leave. It's forever. <laughs> yeah, it's forever. And, and that's why I think as women too, there's been a lot of women who have brought their kids to work. I have my kids on set with me. Uh, but I was the one who created that opportunity. Like I had a short film that I did and in my budget, I paid for childcare for my um, set designer, artistic director to bring her kids all on set in Banff. I think I was the first time anyone's ever seen that in a budget. Wow. I paid for her gas. I paid for her aunt to come. I paid for two separate rooms because I wanted her to be part of the project. 
I couldn't have to say, oh, you have to leave your kids for three weeks. You know, and that's what makes a difference when you have women in key creative roles, because we know that reality. So it's like, so if you want to work, how do we make it work for you? How do we be flexible? Other people that don't have that experience don't know how to even address it. So for me, creating that in the budget or that budget, creating that budget line for someone was creating meaningful change and allowing her to work and make money. You know, she's a single mom. So like we do these things because we know the reality. And I think that's why it's so important to be in those key creative roles. So when you return to work, you're competing with people that don't necessarily have kids or, you know, have certain privileges that you don't. And it makes it even, you have to work even harder and then you're even more tired. Yeah. Right? Well, that's, that's amazing. And I think that uh, it's really, I you know, I hope that other people are listening and think that's a wonderful idea. And that's something that they'll hopefully start to take on board because that's certainly something I would love. Uh, I'm, you don't know this, but I'm an entertainment lawyer. And um, <laughs> if I can be writing that into contracts, I, it'll be a very happy day for me. <laughs> oh my God. See, that's how we create change, right? That's how yeah. we create change is by doing the things that would be meaningful for us and make it meaningful 100%. for someone else, right? Like we have to make things just and they're not. And that's what makes it hard. Um, so my, my last question that I ask everybody is can you recommend a piece of Canadian content that you that you love? Um, yeah, for sure. I feel like the big uh, game changer for me was 270 years of resistance because I used to hang out with Kizus when I Kizus is Alanisa Bomswin's daughter, so we used to go party and have fun and be crazy. You know, when I went to university, so I didn't know who her mom was. I just went to her house. I was like, "What's all these awards? What?" what whose house is this? Where, what's going on? <laughs> anyway. And then I remember being introduced to that film. I'm like, that's your mom. Holy, like changing that kind of white authority, that didactic voice of the white man, changing that to the voice of an indigenous women in documentary just changed the landscape for me. I was just like, this is incredible. And maybe that's part of the reason why I stuck to documentary as well is just because I just thought she just really changed documentary for indigenous folks. 270 years, I was just in awe. I was like, holy smokes, because you had her go from outside the barricades to inside and, and you know, working for the people and with the people. Like, that was huge. That was huge at that time, right? So that's a big one. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and, you know, sharing your journey through the industry and, and being so open about the process. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. That was great. Wonderful. Nice to meet you. And um, yeah, hope people come out to see Broken Angel and my other oh, films. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I didn't even give you the chance. Please, please promo. Look, where can everyone find Broken Angel? Okay. Uh, so Broken Angel is premiering at Imaginative um, in Toronto on October 20th, as well as my short film, Mystic. I uh, worked with a lot, of, a lot of my students from Capilano on that film. So that's also premiering at Imaginative. And then we're going to the American Indian Film Festival in San Francisco in November, hopefully LA Skins as well. And then uh, we're having our BC premiere at the Whistler Film Festival. So hopefully I see everyone there. Amazing. Well, congratulations on the film and, and good luck with all the film festivals. That'll be very exciting.